3: issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we have another frequent listener request, which is the Hartford Circus Fire. We've gotten a lot of requests for it before, and then every time we talk about a fire, it seems like people ask for more fires. So, we've gotten lots of requests for this one. Uh, And there are actually lots of books about the Hartford Circus Fire, and they don't agree with each other in some pretty fundamental ways. They draw really vastly different conclusions about everything from who started the fire, if anyone deliberately started it, and the identity of the most famous unidentified victim. There's just a lot of discrepancy between them all, and I really didn't relish the idea of reading through multiple books that were effectively quarreling with each other about what happened. So I took a little bit of a different tack when researching this article, and that was that instead of reading lots of books, I read historical newspapers that were published at the time of this tragedy, and I followed the story as it happened. So most of the information in today's episode comes from the New York Times and the Boston Globe, which was then the Daily Boston Globe, uh, as it was reported on the day. Uh, And I didn't have access to the archives of the Hartford Current, which would be the logical paper to read because it was the local paper to where this tragedy happened. Um, But I did read some of their more recent coverage of retrospectives and updates and things like that. So we're going to talk about the Hartford Circus Fire.
5: So the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, which we are just going to kind of shorten to Ringling Brothers or Ringling for the sake of simplicity, as needed. So we're not whipping out a huge phrase every time we have to reference it. Uh, was filled with about eight thousand people in Hartford, Connecticut, on July sixth of nineteen
0: forty-four, and the big top at the circus was big, really big. I mean, the name the name was suitable. For this one, it was 600 feet long and 220 feet wide, so that's about 20 by 60 meters. And it weighed 20 tons. While it had about 8,000 people in it on this particular day, it could hold up to 12,000.
5: And because this was World War II, most of the men of Hartford were either away fighting or they were working multiple shifts at nearby factories. So overwhelmingly, the people in the audience were children, mothers, and grandparents.
0: The show started at 2 in the afternoon, and at about 2.40, a big cat show in the center ring had just wrapped up. The famous Flying Walendas were starting their high wire act up above, and people started to notice a flame working its way up the side of the tent near the men's restroom by the main entrance.
5: The fire spread extremely quickly. By the time a trio of ushers got there with buckets of water, it was already too big for them to put out. Almost sim- simultaneously, people started yelling fire, and the band switched to playing Stars and Stripes Forever, known in the business as the Disaster March, and used to signal that there is an emergency.
0: People in the top rows of the bleachers jumped down into the straw that was below them and made for the exits or went out under the tents' sidewalls. The people who were up in the top of the bleachers... Overall, fared better than the people who were lowered down for that reason, because the people who were closer to the floor got caught in the resulting stampede. Parents and entertainers literally threw children over animal cages that were blocking the exits. Some of them cut their way out of the tent with pocket knives.
5: The Walendas, at risk of being trapped above the fire, slid down ropes to the ground. The performers' exit was blocked by the crowd, so they headed for one of the exits blocked by animal cages. Some climbed over while others tried to feed some of the crowd through the animal chutes that would lead out of the tent.
0: Famous clown Emmett Kelly, who was in his sad tramp clown role of Weary Willie, was actually part of the, the Willindas act. While they did their work up in the top of the tent, he would run around below them with a little butterfly net. When he heard people screaming, he thought that one of the Willindas had fallen. And so he looked out and saw that the tent was on fire. He ran back to his dressing room to grab the buckets that he would use to clean himself up after the show was over, and he filled them with water at a horse trough. Then he ran back in to try to put the fire out.
5: He threw the water onto the burning tent, but it was far too late. The fire was much too big to be put out by a couple of buckets. So instead, he tried. He started trying to evacuate children from the tent. The blaze was very close to the main entrance, so he started trying to guide people to a side exit that was not on fire.
0: Some of the kids were actually scared of him. They were scared anyway, but then they were scared because this clown was talking to him. Uh, But he did get as many of the kids around him as he could to safety. And then he saw that the fire was getting close to a set of gas engines that operated some of the circus equipment. So he refilled his buckets and tried to soak the canvas near the engines as much as possible, hopefully making them less likely to catch fire. Then he escaped from the tent himself. There
5: are actually pictures of Emmett Kelly still in his makeup, carrying buckets that were taken the day of the fire. Uh, And that led to this event being nicknamed the day the clowns cried.
0: Another heroic act by one of the entertainers came from big cat trainer, Mae Kovar. She uh, was at the center of the tent where her animal act had just concluded. There was still a panther in the metal cage that was part of the big cat show. And she knew that if she didn't get both herself and the panther out and then secure all the cages of the other big cats who were part of the show, that they had the potential to break loose in all of the chaos and cause more injuries and deaths.
5: Not surprisingly, if you have ever spent time around animals that are panicked... Uh, This terrified panther balked at going down the chute that led back to its cages outside. It was just terrified. So Kovar used a whip, which was really part of her costume and not part of how she handled animals, to try to herd it into the chute. And once it was on its way, she realized that she was trapped. The escaping crowd had packed against the door leading out of the cage. So she escaped by following the panther down the exit chute, and then she got the big cat's cages secure so that they could not escape into the crowd.
0: The big top collapsed behind her, and this had only been about 10 minutes since the fire started, and it burned so hot that it literally melted the tent poles and the animal cage that was at the middle of the center ring. As the tent fell on fire, it trapped a lot of people who were still inside trying to escape.
5: Although none of the circus employees were killed, possibly because they knew they could get out of just about any part of the tent by going under the sidewalls, Many were badly burned as they tried to get others to safety and as they formed bucket brigades to try to extinguish the fire. Since no animals were in the tent and the fire didn't spread to the sideshow or the menagerie, no animals were hurt or killed in the blaze.
0: 168 people died. Half of them were children and a third of them were ages nine and younger. Only a handful of those lost were adult men. Four entire families died and the children of five other families were orphaned. There were also 682 injuries. And
5: uh, we're going to talk about sort of the aftermath and how Hartford responded to this tragedy after we take a little break uh, and have a word from a sponsor. Alrighty, so you may want to set up a website, but maybe you don't know how to code, or maybe you do know how to code, but you just want a simpler way where you can maybe do drag and drop kind of intuitive work. And if that's your jam, then Squarespace is a solution for you. Uh, they're going to offer you total web setup without having to know, as we said computer science you can just know that you want something beautiful and that you want to put it together they have 24 7 customer support to help with all of that you can get support through email you can get support through live chat and they're available 24 hours a day seven days a week and they will help you put together beautiful responsive designs they're going to be clean and gorgeous and your content is what your website is about at that point and not people trying to figure out how to find things or make it work uh, one of the things that we've talked about before is the Squarespace logo creator, which is awesome. If you are a Squarespace customer, it's free and they will help you put together a really beautiful logo for your website or your company. Tracy, you've talked about before how they have uh, commerce options for people that want to set up a website that's actually a business.
0: Oh, yeah. And a lot of times if a, if a service doesn't offer that as part of its package, it can be really tricky to get all of the logistics of that in order. But this makes it really simple. It's all right there in one place as part of the service.
5: Yeah, it's super easy to integrate. And your website is going to look great on any device that people access it from. So whether they're looking at it on a laptop computer, on a tablet, or even on a mobile phone, it's still going to look fabulous. Right now, you can try it risk-free at squarespace.com slash history that's going to get you a free 14 day trial and you are not going to have to involve your credit card at all. So then if you like the product, you can keep it for as low as $8 a month. And that will include a free domain name if you sign up for a full year. So if you use the offer code history, you can get 10% off your first purchase. And that is at squarespace.com. So go make a beautiful website, get your presence online in the best
0: way possible. And we'll get back to history. So to return to the, the city of Hartford, Army and Navy forces were deployed to the scene of the fire, along with 300 ambulances and 1,500 Red Cross volunteers. Red Cross involvement with the victims of this disaster actually went on for almost a year. State guardsmen were deployed as well. A shipment of six blood plasma converters was flown in from Boston, and the doctors who worked with the burn patients credited this increased availability of plasma with saving many lives.
5: A morgue was set up at the Hartford Armory, and bodies were laid out in the hopes that next of kin would be able to identify their families. But the fire burned so hot that some of the bodies inside were essentially cremated already, and it melted some of the steel girders
0: that held up the tent. There was a series of investigations. State Policy Commissioner Edward J. Hickey, acting as State Fire Marshal, issued a report that blamed not only the Ringling Brothers staff responsible for the tent, but also the city of Hartford for not having inspected the circus or the tent beforehand. Part of the report read, No arrangements were made or requested by any representative of the circus for firemen or for firefighting equipment to be in attendance upon the circus grounds during any performance. The Hartford Fire Department did not detail any firemen or assign any firefighting apparatus to be in attendance at the circus grounds during any of the performances. That's where the quote ends. The only inspection of the circus that the city had conducted was on the part of the building supervisor's office, which had judged that the erection of the tent, the bleachers and the exits was satisfactory, which was the same as in previous years. So aside
5: from that, the Big Top itself was highly flammable. It had been waterproofed using paraffin that was dissolved in gasoline. And that was actually a pretty common method of waterproofing materials at the time. When testifying in the investigation, then Ringling President Robert Ringling claimed that he hadn't been able to find a material that was both waterproof and fireproof because the nation was at war. So resources were in high demand and low availability. He also claimed that the war had left the circus shorthanded, which is why there were fewer firefighters on staff.
0: Another report filed by Frank E. Healy named seven employees of the circus responsible for the fire. James A. Haley, Vice President, George W. Smith, General Manager, Leonard S. Aylesworth, Chief Tentman, David W. Blanchfield, Chief Truckman, Edward W. Veerstig, Chief Electrician, William Cayley, Chief Seatman, and Samuel Clark Seatman. The two Seatmen were supposed to remain under the bleachers during the show, and if they'd been there, chances are one of them would have seen the fire when it was much smaller and stomped it out, which would have prevented the whole disaster. The Ringling Brothers Circus, as a corporation, was also charged with involuntary manslaughter, along with all seven men, although the charges against Clark were eventually dropped.
5: All seven of the men and the circus pleaded no contest. Their defense counsel maintained that they were innocent, but were pleading no contest to avoid a lengthy trial. He also claimed that they were all essential to the circus resuming operations in order to try to get a lighter sentence.
0: It probably sounds callous that they were also interested in returning to work, but one of the reasons that they were so eager to resume circus operations, is that stopping the show was costing the circus about $10,000 a day. And possibly believing that doing so would get them more leniency, the circus had agreed to take full responsibility for the fire and to pay all of the claims that were brought against it. Although the circus was insured, this insurance wasn't enough to pay off all of the claims, which early estimates put at a million dollars, Turned out to actually be a lot more. So they weren't just saying we have to return to work as a way to get out of it. Like they genuinely needed to return to work to make enough money to be able to pay off these lawsuits.
5: A superior court judge permitted the circus to collect its property and leave town on July 14th of 1944. And it returned to its winter quarters in Sarasota, Florida to regroup and return to work so it could pay off its remaining debts to the victims.
0: Arbitration took six years the arbitration board awarded nearly $4 million to 551 claimants. The average award was around $7,000, although they ranged from $1,000 to 100000 A professional dancer named Catherine R. Martin was burned over 50% of her body and was hospitalized for six months, and she received the largest settlement. Pat- Patricia Murray, who was five at the time of the fire, lost both of her parents and her three-year-old brother, and she was re- awarded $90,000.
5: And as we talked about in our episode on Katie Sandwina, this is often cited as the first Chapter 11 bankruptcy case. But the official classification of Chapter 11 didn't really come around until later. However, the structure was quite similar. In what became known as the Hartford Arbitration Agreement, the circus went into receivership, promising to put all of its profits towards paying the claims and not incur any unusual expenses until all of that was paid off.
0: We didn't say in the Katie Sendwina episode that it specifically was the Hartford Circus fire that we were referencing, but it was. If You were curious. Hartford lawyer Edward Rogan was named as the receiver, and he took over financial operations for the circus while the circus continued to operate during the proceedings of the arbitration. At this time, this was a completely new strategy for a business that was dealing with extreme financial duress. Happens a lot more often nowadays. This really set the precedent for it. The
5: circus finally left receivership in July of 1954 when the court authorized payments to Rogan and Julius B. Schatz, who had served as the circus's counsel. Schatz received $100,000 and Rogan received $60,000, a fraction of his original $225,000 request.
0: As sort of a side note, while overseeing the circus's financial affairs, Rogan also reported that in spite of the Hartford tragedy, The 1944 season was, at that point, the best season in the Ringling Brothers Circus history.
5: Along with many other governments, in the wake of this fire, the Connecticut General Assembly later passed extremely strict fire safety measures for tent circuses. Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey didn't return to the state for years, and they didn't return to Hartford for decades. When the circus tried to arrange an appearance in East Hartford in 1954, the city refused. They flatly said no. Uh, And so the circus did not return to Hartford until the 1970s.
0: It's still not completely clear what caused the fire. Initial results blamed a carelessly tossed cigarette. A later theory was a short circuit in the wiring in the men's room. And another theory is that it was deliberately set. The city has at various points uh, reopened the case to re-examine the evidence. And there have also been people that have more re-examined all the evidence as a personal hobby. Uh, in
5: 1950, an Ohio man named Robert D. Segui, uh, we're guessing on that pronunciation because we could not find one online that was definitive, uh, claimed that he had set the fire deliberately, saying that he was aroused about at the circus at the time. He claimed that he had been told to do this by a hallucination of, quote, a red Indian. And while he had pleaded guilty to other arson charges in, Circleville, in the Circleville, Ohio area and served time for those offenses, he was never actually charged in the Hartford Circus fire. And in the end, investigators were generally doubtful that he had actually been involved. There were a lot of inconsistencies and holes in his statements, and some of his claims regarding other crimes were kind of outlandish. And he did later recant his confession.
0: If you go poking around on the Internet, or if you have previously poked around on the Internet, you will find claims, some of them on pretty reputable websites, that he served time in Ohio for the Hartford Circus Fire. The time he served in Ohio was actually for other crimes that were committed in Ohio and not for the Hartford Circus fire. And all of this seems to come from a misunderstanding in a high school student's paper, which perhaps the more recent writers who have used it as a resource didn't realize was by a high school student. I'm 100% not dissing high school students. This paper overall, I've read, is extremely good. Um, and the news coverage at the time of this guy and his confession a lot of it is worded very confusingly because he is framed as the man who confessed to the Hartford Circus Fire. So it's sort of the man who claimed, who uh, who confessed to the Hartford Circus Fire serves time. He was serving time for something else, right?
5: Uh, and there is also around this case uh, a sort of famous unidentified victim. There are several, actually. And we're going to delve into their stories after we take a little break and have a word from a sponsor.
0: And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit
1: QuickBooks. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For.
0: So today, there is a memorial in Hartford, Connecticut, and the middle of it is where the center pole of the Big Top stood. Around the perimeter, there are several dogwood trees that note where the perimeter of the tent would have been. There's also a monument listing the names of the people who died, and several plaques that give a timeline of what happened during the fire.
5: There's also a memorial at Northwood Cemetery for the victims of the fire who were not identified. Three unidentified children and three adults were buried there on July 10th of 1944, and an
0: unidentified baby was
5: cremated.
0: Uh, And I I didn't put it in here, but uh, Northwood Cemetery is not actually in Hartford proper. It's in like a neighboring community. Only one of these six bodies that were buried at Northwood Cemetery has ever been identified. And this was an eight-year-old girl who died in the fire and came to be known as Little Miss 1565 after the number that she was assigned at the morgue. She wasn't identified for years after the fire. She had been uh, trampled during the stampede as people tried to escape. She died of her injuries about three hours after being found. But since her face wasn't very badly burned, they were hopeful that her family would find her. Her features were really recognizable, and her picture was published in the newspapers. Her story really caught the hearts of a lot of people who were following the tragedy as it unfolded, Uh, especially as the attention kept returning to her case to try to identify who she was.
5: And police theorized that her family must have uh, been new to the area and that her parents must have been killed in the fire. Or perhaps uh, some other family had mistaken a different badly burned body as their own child, leaving Little Miss 1565
0: behind. The search for Little Miss 1565's family went on for months her picture was in papers in Hartford, Boston, New York, and other northeastern cities. There were calls that came in from all over New England from people who claimed that she was their relative, but they didn't pan out. The Various things didn't match up. I think they were using dental records, and dental records didn't match.
5: For decades, Hartford police brought flowers to the grave at Christmas and on the anniversary of the fire, and the coverage of that tradition would start this cycle of letters and calls about Little Miss 1565 all over again.
0: In 1991, so almost 50 years after the fire, Hartford Fire Lieutenant Rick Davey identified Little Miss 1565 as Eleanor Cook. He interviewed surviving family members of various families in the hope of finding out who this little girl was. He also did a lengthy reinvestigation of the fire itself. Uh, Eleanor's surviving brother, Donald, who was nine at the time of the fire and was there but escaped, confirmed her identification.
5: And the reason that she hadn't been identified at the time of the event was that her mother, Mildred Cook, had been so badly burned in the fire that she was unconscious for weeks, and she ended up hospitalized for six months. Her son, Edward, was six, and he had also died in the fire. And once Mildred was well enough to leave, she was too traumatized to look for her daughter's body.
0: An amended death certificate was issued for Eleanor on March 8, 1991, and her remains were reinterred next to her deceased brother, where the gravestone had previously marked an empty grave.
5: However, there are still people who actually question this identification, in part because other members of the family had said Little Miss 1565 was not Eleanor at the time of the fire. In fact, this had made Donald reluctant to ask about it. He worried that he would upset his mother or his aunt, who had made the initial identification.
0: In a weird recent twist, upon his retirement, Hartford Fire Captain William Pond destroyed the photos of her that had hung in the firehouse of Engine Company 14 for more than 25 years, saying he was afraid that her soul would never find rest otherwise. Uh, following letters to the editor <laughs> after this are kind of divided about whether that was the right thing to do or not uh yeah i mean i
5: I would have questions of like was this something that a decision that he made solely on his
0: own or were other people involved? He seems to have been trying to get other uh fire department leadership to to take it down for a long time and and was shut down every time he asked about it, and so he did it himself as he was retiring, figuring he was untouchable at that point, bye. That that seems to be, that is what I would read into it, yes. Huh. Uh, so, yeah, it's sort of an odd coda to that whole story. It is. Uh, there are definitely, yeah, there are definitely some unanswered questions that will probably remain uh, forever about the fire and exactly what happened. But it was definitely a tragedy. It definitely led to some much more stringent rules, especially about tent circuses in particular, uh, all over the United States, not just in Connecticut.
5: In peppier news, do you have a spot of listener mail?
0: I do. It's a correction about our episode on the Catalpa and the Fremantle 6. And this is from Louise. And Louise says, I recently discovered your podcast and am really loving it. So well done. I was listening to your episode about the Catalpa and the Fremantle 6 today, and I wanted to correct something. I'm from Perth, Western Australia. And you said that the Fremantle 6 was the only successful prison break from Fremantle Prison. This is not actually true. In the 1800s, there was a bushranger called Joseph Bolithio Johns, uh, known more commonly as Moondyne Joe. He was notorious for escaping and roaming the countryside so much that Fremantle Prison built a custom cell specifically designed to keep Moondyne in. He escaped. You can still visit the cell today. Here's a link to more about him. Uh, And then she says she really loved the episode about Katie Sandwina. I hope I'm saying Moondyne correctly. Uh, So... I wrote back and I said, wow, I wonder which of my sources got that completely wrong. Uh, some of that was based on books that have had to go back to the library since then, but it was 100% wrong. I have learned since then that not only did this guy escape and the Fremantle Six escape, there's a whole page about jailbreaks at the Fremantle Prison. <laughs> and it turns yeah. out it was a tradition. <laughs> It turns out that there, that while they were relying on the uh, the overwhelmingly forbidding territory around the prison to keep people inside, there were other people who broke out. So we messed that up. Uh, and now we know. So thank you, Louise, for writing to let us know that that was definitely 100% not correct. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, you can. We're at History podcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash mist history and on Twitter at mist history. Our Tumblr is mist history.tumblr.com and we are on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash mist in history. We have a Spreadshirt store full of shirts and whatnot. You can uh, look that up at mist If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, kind of a different angle, you can come to our parent company's website, put the word confession in the search bar and you will find the article why would a person make a false confession to a crime? Uh, you can also come to our website and find an archive of all of our episodes ever, show notes for the ones Holly and I have worked on, other cool stuff. So you can do all of that at HowStuffWorks.com or MissInHistory.com.
1: Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We're the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast.
2: Welcome to Locatora Radio season nine. Love, love at, at first, first listen. listen. This season we're falling in love with podcasting all over again.
1: With new segments, correspondence, and a new
2: sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the Nosabo kids, the the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.